when I'm talking about ethical formation, this is not a solipsistic, individualistic exercise and how we can lead better lifestyles. I'm talking about ethical formation as a way in which we can shape ourselves as achievements in this world in relation to other people in order to then reshape the social and political and economic and cultural orders within which we're a part. Hello, and if you are, um, if you've listened to the first two episodes of the podcast, you'll understand that one of the overarching themes is my excitement, and today's episode certainly does not disappoint. Nikki Clements has uh, has really been instructive in helping me, and it it just so happened that Jeff Kripal had introduced us, and she was adventurous and willing to sit down with me, mic'd up the first time we met, so. This is a this is a really neat experiment. I appreciate her willingness to uh, to participate. The I'm I'm careful through each of these podcasts to be sure to define terms, and there are a couple that we didn't get to, so I want to note those now. Uh, epistemology is the study of knowledge, or how we come to know what we know, and ontology is the na- the study of the nature of being or the study of reality. And those two terms come up uh, enough times that I wanted to note that in the introduction. The music you're hearing is from Modern Nations. You can check them out at modernnationsmusic.com. And if you'd like to learn more about anyone you hear on the podcast, check them out at thesacredspeaks.com. That's thesacredspeaks.com. Uh, Nikki's been really helpful to me, we, we ended up discovering that we shared uh, a common methodology in our research, and uh, it's, a, it's s- somewhat, at least in, in my world, it's a rare one, so it was really exciting to find somebody who, who has been get, not only exploring these ideas, but, but doing it in a way that um, offers a certain orientation that looks at layers of experience and We'll get more into that, um, absolutely in today's episode, but but more throughout the entire project. Uh, the the only thing I want to do uh, next is read her bio, and then we'll get started. So Nikki Clements works at the disciplinary intersection between the history of Christian practice, philosophy of religion, and religious ethics. She specializes in Christian asceticism and mysticism in late antiquity, highlighting its resources for thinking through contemporary ethical formation and conceptions of the self. She is currently completing the first comprehensive treatment of the ethical thought of John Cashin, circa 360 through 435, a late antique Catholic architect of Latin monasticism doctrinally marginalized for his optimistic views on human agency. 
engaging Michael Foucault's late work on ethics, which sees Cashin as a crucial inaugurator of modern disciplinary subjectivity. She critiques the conceptual limitations that Foucault's philosophical categories impose on his reading of Cashin, the late antique Christianity, and the study of religion. She also pursues a transdisciplinary approach with cognitive neuroscience to argue that ethical formation integrates consciousness, embodiment, and affectivity. She's the volume editor for The Mental Religion, The Brain, Cognition, and Culture as part of the forthcoming Macmillan Interdisciplinary Handbook. She is, uh, she's, as I say about all these folks, she's wonderful. So I'll leave it there and bring in Nikki. Okay, so you're catching us uh, in mid-conversation and mid-coffee, sip of coffee. Because um, the coolest thing about this thing that I'm doing is I get to meet all these really cool people. And so here's one of them. I mean, literally, I get to meet somebody and begin a conversation where we, we talk about your interests. So thank you for being here. Um, you've given me access to your book uh, before others. Yeah, so I've, I've, I've got the inside scoop here, um, which I'm so excited about. And I, I thank you. Um, what a really cool opportunity to, to get to know you first through those words. And now to be able to uh, to chat with you in person. Your book, Sites of the Ascetic Self. Um, I want to plant that title out there, and then this project is in, in part all about. Um, first and foremost, is having a literature review. You know, the process of defining of terms. Um, so we'll get into that, and then do some book exploration. But before we we go into that, when I think about the title, Sites of the Ascetic Self, the first thought that comes to mind is uh, I'm sure something you've heard before, and I know you've taught on this, but for me, ascetic, um, the, the word, first really came to light for me when I was learning about Buddhism. Mm -hmm. And when uh, Siddhartha goes through and, and kind of leaves the, the familiar world and goes out into the forest and, uh, and learns some really intense stuff, you know, it's like a seat a day and, um, you know, it's an intense practice. Do you, what is ascetic and what is asceticism? <laughs> no problem. Okay, so <laughs> no problem. I think the core of asceticism here is thinking about how certain practices of discipline can actually enable and help produce certain forms of transformation. So when we go back to the ancient Greek word for ascesis, it's really about a kind of a practice, right? An everyday practice. But that kind of practice is about a training and it's about a rigorous training of yourself in order to actually produce your very self. So there's no kind of autonomous subject that's preformed, right? There's no modern a priori subject that we need to then dismantle. Instead, we're thinking about ascesis as the site of self-formation. And this is what we see, right, with these uh, spectacular religious figures, where you have these kind of exemplary figures doing exceptional practices that seem to be above and beyond the pale of the everyday. What I'm most interested in with these kinds of figures, right, whether it's Siddhartha, whether it's John Cashin, is the way in which the way that they're thinking about their own ascesis and the kind of orientation they have towards a kind of transformation, whether it's to you know, eradicate the illusion of self or whether it's to fortify a kind of conception of a Christian self. In both cases, I don't think they're that exceptional. right? What's most interesting to me about ascesis is how everyday it is and the way that we can see these practices being unpacked and unfolded by these uh, you know, larger-than-life characters 
actually have so many more resonances with what it is to be a human day to day, forging your own life, the kinds of difficulties, the kinds of joys and despairs, right? They're all part of the practice in ascesis. So too, I think we can think about ethics as something that can be enacted and engaged on a daily level. So it's really about kind of making the, uh, the spectacular ascetics into, uh, I call them these kinds of, um, you know, asymptotes, right? Where you have this relationship towards that regulatory ideal that you're never going to achieve because they're larger than life and they seem to be above and beyond. But the practice of getting there involves similar kinds of mechanisms of transformation. And those mechanisms, I think, are not great acts of the will or some kind of one-off mystical transformation, although that could be a part of the case. Mm -hmm. I'm most interested in the day-to-day, -day, right? How do we transform our bodies? How do we transform our emotions? How do we transform in relation to other people? All within this kind of context of keeping in some perspective what it is that we care about most and what we're orienting ourselves towards and what we're doing it for. So, uh, thank you. I'm just going to stop my uh, my exploration of any of this and just start taking your classes because you've basically summarized <laughs> exactly um, what I'm so interested in. Well, that's what we're doing right now. We're doing that ancient form of rhodopocresis, which is more or less question and answer. So you have a novice who goes, seeks out an elder. Let's talk about the Egyptian desert, for example, right? Not exactly... Um, hospitable conditions oftentimes, and you sit at the foot of the elder, and then you ask questions, and they respond, and they bloviate, <laughs> just like any modern professor would. <laughs> but the most important thing about that is that that elder was a novice at some point, right? Mm -hmm. This kind of uh, tradition that's established, the intergenerational nature of ascesis, of this kind of training, and of this kind of pedagogical process. I think is also so um, so necessary to keep in mind. So I like how you say, oh, I'll just take your classes now. But I'm like, well, I want to take, you know, <laughs> Jeff's classes. Or <laughs> I've only been shaped this way because of my own mentors. Well, is it, I mean, that's in part what it is. You know, this, um, you know, it's all standing on everybody's shoulders and learning more from everybody's area of interest. Hmm. Although in yours, I, I got to tell you just where I am right now as what, what I think today we would call a spiritual practice, mm -hmm. um, which to me has been very intellectual, um, somewhat getting into the body, but, but highly intellectual. Mm -hmm. I think you really did such a great job of, of situating these, and we'll get to this, the, the body emotions and the reflection of relationship. I think you did mm -hmm. such a good job of situating that into, a, um, in, into planting the seeds of the how-tos, you know, at least the, 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 the daily orientation that one takes to one's lived experience, you know, in every moment. And for that, I'm, I'm truly grateful. Um, so let, let's, we're, we're gonna, all right, she's, she's set you guys up. So yeah. <laughs> now we've got the framework, now let's go back. You know, what, uh, would you talk a little bit about how you came to be interested in all this stuff? Yes. <laughs> I'll give the response in relation to this view of his cases first, uh -huh. and then we can do the uh, existential deep dive if we want. Great. <laughs> Only if we want. <laughs> I do, yes. Yeah. And the first part you'll resonate with, because mm -hmm. as a musician, mm -hmm. right, you know what it's like to actually become a musician. Yeah. It's a way of life. Yeah. Right? You don't just play. Right. It inflects everything that you do. And when I was thinking about uh, the construction of the self, especially in the Western tradition, as an undergraduate through my various graduate programs, I kept coming across such an emphasis on interiority mm -hmm. and belief and mm -hmm. rationality mm -hmm. in the modern period. 
And that really chafed against the kinds of presentations of philosophy as a way of life in antiquity. Right. And not just in Greek and Roman antiquity, but also in early forms of Christianity and Judaism, um, not to mention later you know, religious forms. So that kind of basic intuition that the self had to be more, and we had to foreground more than the kind of reflexive sight of the you know, Cartesian cogito, mm-hmm. and instead think about how the self is your body. It's not about renouncing the body. The self is constituted by your body, by your emotions, etc. I'm sorry, I'm already doing the thing where you said that we would talk about this later, but I'm doing it now. No, no I'm, I'm following you completely. Okay, yeah, great. everybody hang, hang in there for those listening, because we're going we're gonna, to yeah, make it all make sense. So the, uh, the basic intuition that I had was really borne out from my own experience as a dancer. And that was because uh, uh, I was professionally trained from the age of three, and I was dancing up until I had a career-ending injury in college. But from when I was three, for whatever reason, when I was two, I was running around saying, I want to be a ballerina. I'm sure that, that a lot of culture and habitus figures into there. But um, my parents put me into a ballet class my third birthday. And by the time I was six, I was dancing five, six times a week. Uh, by the time I was eight, right, six, seven, depending. And people thought we were crazy. But for whatever reason, the, uh, the kind of discipline that was involved, the kind of grounding, the kind of daily practices, the ability to commit to some kind of rigorous program and to actually see effects allowed me to have a kind of anchor in my life. And it was an anchor that sometimes didn't have a lot of other stability um, due to kind of conditions in the family home, which we won't talk about today. Um, And that was my own sense of center. And it was my own way of forging a sense of self. And it was deeply embodied. But then when we have performances, right, it's also so deeply effective. You train and train and train and train in order to be able to not have to think about the technical aspects. And so then instead you can engage in the kind of affective performance or the full kind of presentness. And it's really with the experience of performing where everything is so present. It has to be. Otherwise, you're too self-conscious and you're just going to screw up. And so in that performance uh, space, there's what I consider to be very close to a kind of, um, you know, like mystical presence. And I use the term mystical very loosely here. But what I mean is a kind of intensification of being here, fully oneself, maximizing everything about one's body, one's emotions, one's reflection in a very interrelational space. So growing up as a dancer, I knew that all of these parts were so vital to what I took to be a self. And when I was reading these different philosophical conceptions, especially in the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment kinds of periods, there was this kind of lack that I felt. There was this sense that human agency can't just be about a kind of rational um, autonomousness, nor can it just be about a kind of post-structural rearticulation of bodily practices where we don't have enough agency when it comes to how we're actually shaping our lives. I think that both of these discourses are really important, but what I wanted to get to was this sense of human agency that could be focused on very mundane daily activities where you can exercise effort, where you can shape your life in the face of chaos, where you can shape your life in the face of so many other constraints, right? Environmental, psychological, um, economic, political. We're so shaped by so many of the conditions in our world. We are shaped as subjects in this world. And what I wanted to figure out was how can we also be self-shaping? 
And as a dancer growing up, I had that kind of everyday experience and I didn't know how to give that language until I started thinking about ascesis from a very uh, academic perspective, from a very philosophical one, and from a very existential one. Because to me, there was an urgency. And it was an urgency that I felt very young. And it's become more and more explicit in terms of the categories that I'm using, in terms of the um, you know, ideas that I'm trying to make more central to discourses on uh, ethical formation and human agency. But, uh, but it all comes back to this kind of central feeling being formed in a certain way and knowing that that was a, uh, a, a very different way of thinking about self-formation than what we typically have. So I was saying that this might resonate with you because as a musician, yeah. right, this entire way of life mentality where you don't see an outside to it in a way, right? Like the way in which you live day to day is going to impact the kind of musician you're going to be. So too, as an academic, right? The kinds of daily practices, and this is what I'm gonna make it very mundane, right? What are you drinking? Well, coffee, because we need to stimulate our minds at 10 a.m., <laughs> which is not my preferred time of the day. <laughs> Sorry about that. As a musician, I'm assuming that uh, it isn't yours my, either. My night guy and my day guy are no longer in battle, actually. My, my day guy's winning over. I'm up in the morning. And I'm, you know, so it, it, I've made the transition. Yeah, I've submitted as well. The kind of professionalism <laughs> that's required of being an actual professor, as opposed to in training, right. is uh, yeah, it requires it. So you I've know, made I, my peace with the day. Yeah, that's it's kind of one of those. For me, it's become one of those practices. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I was in a space of relating with you. You've, you've re referenced my kind of musical background. And so the, for you, there was a shift. There was a noticeable shift when kind of dance happened and then you had to take a look at uh, what else was going on. Mm -hmm. it, what, what, how old were you when that happened? I was 19. Okay, so pretty, uh, you, you've gone the distance. Yeah. You've been doing it for a long oh, time. Oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, around the Bay Area. Yeah. Yeah, pre-professional companies, um, training at some of the best studios there. And that was definitely the, uh, the broader trajectory, both expected of myself and expected by others. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I relate with the, um, that change. Mm -hmm. I was in denial, though, for a while. Sure. I didn't actually give it up until 21 uh -huh. or so. And there were a number of strange um, uh, force vectors coming into play at that point. So maybe I'll just talk briefly about the existential element there. Okay. And you can choose to pick this up and go with it or not. Um, so I had uh, the, the injury at the end of my freshman year. I decided to go to Sarah Lawrence College because they had the best academics as well as dance. And at the time, they had a, uh, a really excellent program. The program changed. It became more of a postmodern program. Um, I was trained very technically and rigorously and to my mind it was not the kind of dance that I was interested in doing, nor the type of dance that my body was really prepared to take on. Um, so that was the end of my freshman year when I had a terrible injury. And I kept going. Um, I had surgery, I came back, it didn't work. I came back and then eventually I got a dance scholarship at um, a studio in New York. So I was living in, um, in, uh, in the Bronx off Gun Hill Road, <laughs> which isn't exactly a safe area, at least then. And I was commuting up to Sarah Lawrence on the Metro Rail and taking the D-line down to, uh, to Steps on Broadway. And so I was kind of living both, li uh, both lives. But at that time, in my junior year, uh, I decided to take this philosophy class. And it was a class on empathy. 
And it was ostensibly about Simon Weil, the 20th century French philosopher, the contemporary of uh, Simon de Beauvoir and Sartre. Um, but it was about Simon's engagement with the ancient Greeks. So we were reading a lot of Plato and the pre-Socratics. And why I was so interested in it was because this question of empathy was so central. And the possibility of empathy became so, um, so thin for a while in my own estimation in the world. And this class was really kind of setting up the stakes for why studying philosophy matters, why studying history matters. And the particular question we had at hand was, what's the relationship between the universal and the particular? And so I spend you know, the, the next day, two days, talking about the connection between the universal and the particular. Well, what are the strengths of these respective kinds of categories? How do they interact? And then the next day, um, the September 11th attacks happened. And I was living in the Southern Bronx, and so I could see out my window, not the building as such, but the you know, huge plumes of smoke, and I saw the second tower fall from the TV that was in my room. And so there was this sense of that kind of, um, oh, the way that I experienced it, um, strangely the night before as well as that day, was a sense of kind of universal indifference. The entire concept of the universal in particular seemed bankrupt because it just seemed to be indifferent, and we seemed to be entering into uh, an age of chaos, or at the very least, an age of indifference that isn't even caring enough to be chaotic. It's just this kind of um, you know entropy that's setting in. So having that experience, and then uh, realizing the kind of geopolitical uh, precipitates for it and the implications of it, that's when I realized we have to be studying philosophy. We have to be studying uh, history. We have to understand that any claims towards universalism right, are going to set off uh, kind of an obverse effect in terms of the, uh, the rise of particularism. And so the, uh, the kind of existential space that got opened up when I no longer had my identity that I had had my entire life ostensibly as a dancer. And I was taking these classes in philosophy that was opening me up to kind of world history and the, the, the urgency of, of the 21st century. Those two things really made me um, gradually, at the very least, um, head towards questions of ethics. Because for me, there are real stakes in the way in which these religious traditions are constructed, in the way in which religions, cultures, politics, economics, all of these combine in, uh, in these really uh, death-oriented ways in, uh, in the 20th and 21st century, in large part because of the way in which the United States has been dealing with its own politics. Not to mention the rise of financial capitalism, which has really just screwed us all. We're going to go into that, definitely. Would you talk for a second about universalism and particularism? The, uh, I think um, sometimes that, you know, we're talking about sameness and difference, mm -hmm. essentially. Is that, is that correct? That's one way to articulate it. Uh -huh. um, you can think about it on a, on a number of levels. The one that we were dealing with directly in that class was very cosmological. Right? What is it to... Um, yeah, I guess, yes, from this kind of qualitative understanding, understand the, the, the universe to be qualitatively similar versus um, seeing the universe as qualitatively different, which is to say particular. You can also think about that from an anthropological perspective, and by that I mean a kind of uh, philosophical anthropology, where we're thinking about the, uh, the human being as an anthropos. And the question is, how is one a particular individual, and how does that particular re individual relate to the universal? Uh, you can think about this from a historical perspective, which is uh, the kind of uh, 
progress narrative in history that we see in Hegel and other figures in modernity where you have the kind of differentiation into the particulars. But you also have this kind of rise of a, uh, of a universal spirit, the kind of coming into consciousness of, uh, of human beings and human society. So ontologically, universality could indicate sameness and particularity difference. But you can also think about this diachronically, right? How do the universal and particular come into conflict? If we think about it politically, which is the way in which I was taking it right. um, at that time, it's um, how does it claim to you universalism, universal truth, really, and the kind of dogmatism that comes from there um, occlude particular positions, especially people who don't have uh, the subject position of being in a dominant or hegemonic um, religious tradition and position. So in the most simplistic way here, we've got an experience where you are individually and collectively traumatized, mm -hmm. suffering the loss of an identity, feeling an indifference to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure a life experience and something happens. Mm -hmm. You're touched by a philosophy and history that puts you in relationship with something. Right? And is that, well, I guess, what what gave you the the sense to go on there when no doubt you're suffering greatly you know on many levels uh first of all you're a great therapist <laughs> <laughs> do you take etna uh, <laughs> stop me please if you ever you know kick me out of the table and say you know none of that <laughs> no i think that was a, a beautiful and succinct way of putting it and let me assure you, like my, my own suffering was not what I was, it's not what I thought that I was experiencing at the time uh -huh. because I was still, you know, very young and very naive and had this kind of solipsistic notion that I could feel universal, um, you know, universal empathy or universal depravity, um, that my experience hooked into the experiences of others in this intersubjective mode. And I don't believe that anymore, but I really did have that kind of uh, mystical orientation towards the world. Um, and that proved untenable for me. So at that time, the, the kind of uh, tension right, between watching so many of these things go wrong structurally and starting to understand more of you know, immediate history and the, you know, the myth of American exceptionalism mm -hmm. and the, uh, the role of the United States in the Middle East and the production of the very conditions of possibility for such terrorism to take root. These things were becoming so live to me in this way that was so, uh, so overwhelming because it is, right? We can't know all of the mechanisms in place and yet there was this agential shift where I realized, well, I can start to understand. And I need to start to understand because how else am I going to live in this world? And so on the one hand, yes, it was about me. But moreover, it was about me understanding the world in this kind of monolithic way and understanding that I could start to make differentiations and that those differentiations make a difference in how one understands it and therefore how one talks about it and therefore the possibilities of uh, communicating right, different perspectives. The short answer to your question, though, like how did I really push through in this period, was I had an exceptional mentor. Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> this is my read, at least. Yeah. Um, she was a philosophy professor at Sarah Lawrence. She had the Joseph Campbell chair and the, uh, the office that he sat in. And 
She joked that she was sitting on his actual chair. I don't think it was actually a joke. <laughs> they didn't have a lot of resources at Sarah Lawrence, so <laughs> wow. things got a little shoddy. But she helped me understand that you can actually gain some kind of critical apprehension of what seems to be existentially and metaphysically completely overpowering and overwhelming. So it's this kind of like negative mysticism. Uh, and I don't mean apophatic. I mean like right. deeply like destructive, dark night of the soul. Yeah. Birth pangs of a new geopolitics. We've seen how the effects of 2001 have reverberated throughout now to 2017. Yeah. And the last year, which I think is really another turning point. Um, I feel a similar sense of um, despair, mm. but also possibility that has to open up in light of our current politics. But the person who helped me see that there could be a different way was the person who trained me to think reflectively. She's like, you can't wallow. You can't reduce yourself to a passive subject. If you're going to exist in this world, you have to figure out a way to, well, she didn't say this, but what I took away from it was that you need to find a way to forge your own meaning. You need to find um, systems of relationship and forms of identity that can help you feel like you have a sense of place. And that's really probably going to come from helping other people or being other-oriented as opposed to self-oriented. Because that kind of self-orientation really was paralyzing. And it was paralyzing because as a particular individual, you can't do anything. But as parts of collectives, we can actually mobilize for forms of social change. We can push towards greater forms of you know, critical understanding as well as empathetic understanding. So you take insurance? I'm, I'm wondering how the boundaries of being a therapist <laughs> is kind of completely dissolving here. Oh, you know, I was actually thinking recently in light of Hurricane Harvey and they had too many volunteers, right, to, um, right. to let people into, uh, into the GRB. And I thought for the first time, I really wish that I did not do a PhD and did a master's in social work. And then I was thinking since then and after tenure, oh, oh, high faculty. Uh, <laughs> That's the next step. Yeah. Because I need wow. to have some kind of professional credentializing. Yeah. I need to get trained. And I need to also know for myself what the boundaries are mm. and the kind of pedagogical relationships. Because I help students in a way that my mentor helped me, but it has to be about the text. It has to be about the traditions, the critiques, and helping them kind of understand what they care about uh, requires similar kinds of dialogical skills. Uh, that I I want to make sure I'm responsibly engaging. Right. Yeah. Well, you've got the you've got the stuff. Oh. There's no doubt. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. As a professional. Yeah. You can well, as a professional, <laughs> sign off on this. A, um, I I say yes uh, with with a full heart. I, you you definitely already have what you need. I, I'm I'm kind of just blown away by all these things you're bringing up here and um, stunned a bit. Uh, uh, not only with what's unfolding here around your personal experience, but seeing as that situates itself within what I was reading earlier and what I'm, of course, learning about you. I, the, uh, I'm wondering that um, how, in moments when you were in dance, how you how doubt became part of your relationship as a dancer. Mm. Uh, so speak about that for a second, because I can already see little strands approaching... Um, that in your later life and you mean doubt in terms of 
self-doubt absolutely okay yeah primarily yeah oh i mean it's baked in i think that uh doubt isn't even a word that might have made sense because there was uh you know this orientation towards perfection and you work your way towards it and it's not like you doubt you can attain it you know you can't attain it so there's this kind of epistemic certainty and the question is how close can you get and I think the, the, the language of doubt starts to come in when you start thinking about um, different institutions, the different people that you're auditioning for, right? When uh, I went to my Juilliard audition, did I doubt I would get selected? <laughs> I mean, sure, like that's always going to be a part of the background, but did I think that I might not? Lose, I mean, right? right, right. Was there also the, the doubt of the doubt? Was there that sense of affirmation? Not in terms of, you know, me and my own excellence, but me and my own practice and the discipline and the dedication and the orientation towards this as one of those kind of asymptotic goals to work towards. Well, and so, so then you, and I, I, that's, I'm planting a seed there because I have, I have something I'm interested in. Um, you, you were at um, the university and you spent time in Paris. Mm-hmm. Was that connected with? Uh, the university or it was New York University that you you did a it was this was my junior year um, into the summer and I was at Sarah Lawrence College but I did an abroad program through NYU got it yes and there's a story behind that but it's not really interesting what I'm what what I saw that you'd spend time in Paris I, I, I don't know what what was it seems to me that you have a lot of interest in French philosophers mm-hmm. and was that pre-Paris or post or all of it kind of combined? It all combined. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you at Sarah Lawrence, you were connecting with, I'm, I'm sure, these French philosophers, and so you got to have some pretty cool experiences in Paris, I'm mm-hmm. assuming. Yeah. Uh, being in Paris, so it was the uh, summer before my junior year, and then I was junior year, first semester in New York, and then mm-hmm. uh, second semester into the summer back in Paris. And uh, at the time, I didn't know French. So like the summer before I went to, uh, to to Paris, I did not know French at all. So I would translate verbs from the Becherel <laughs> uh, whenever I had a day off or could make it work seven, eight hours straight. I mean, this is mania, right? Well, <laughs> you make fun of that. I don't know. I got a religious term for it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Esquises. <laughs> So I just I conjugated verbs for roughly three months, and I took an introductory <laughs> class, and then I passed into full immersion programs. So when I went to Paris, then I was in, I, mean, I was um, only taking French courses, and they were fascinating, right? Art courses where we would go to uh, a different um, prominent French museum on Thursdays, and on the Tuesday of that week, we would get the rundown of which artists were there and uh, how they helped shape right, the uh, the different intellectual movements. And so it was really as I was coming into French culture that I was also coming into the French language. And what's important about that is I felt like I didn't have a language because as a ballerina, and then I switched to, to modern at a certain point um, because of injuries earlier on. I didn't feel like I had a voice. I didn't feel like a voice, right? Language itself was central to my sense of self, right? Pache, so many of the... Uh, the, the figures in the last 50 years or so. And it was only when I started learning French that I felt like I had the right to speak because I was able to break things down and start to think in another language. And that gave me 
more confidence that I could also speak in my, well, at least one of my native tongues. And it's kind of overstating it, obviously, but my mother's Japanese, and so um, I spoke more Japanese and English for the first five years or so, which probably contributes to the uh, sense of displacement. I'm sorry, I'm just dealing with my jealousy right now. So you over not being able to speak for yeah. 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> I have limitations when it comes to uh, uh, being multilingual. Japanese, French, English. Oh yeah, I speak Japanese like a three-year-old child. It's that's, not like it's that's a pretty. It's amazing, an accolade. Actually. And then I'm, I do a lot of things on the page. But yeah, oh, you do. Yeah, the the Latin, ancient Greek, Koine. Yeah. Spanish, a little ein bisschen Deutsch. <laughs> well, language is it? it um, I, I don't. I want to follow that thread and then come back. I'm finding that more and more how important language is, mm-hmm. um, language is to exactly what you're saying, to understanding everyday activities that have hidden experience. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I, that's what that's one of the reasons why I want to define terms and break things down and try to say what's peeking underneath. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me, what's peeking underneath? And it sounds like you get to do that a lot. Yes, I, and in um, Derridian thought, for example, right? There's always something that evades signification, right? That's just a part of the logic signification. And to me, I always loved the the excess there because it's that which can't translate, and it's not. Uh, well, it's just not reducible to language in the same way. And to my mind, I think the body operates as a similar kind of site. I think the affects operate similarly, right? There's always huh. something that exceeds a translation, and so every translation is a paraphrase but some paraphrases are better than others. And if you have access to at least you know, a basic understanding of another language, you can start to see where the, uh, the fissures are, where something sounds wrong. Um, you know, even strangely, reading uh, Murakami in English, certain translations I just make uh, my ears burn. It's not like I know how to read Japanese, but there's something off where I, I can I kind of hear the rhythm that it might have been. So that's what I mean by something very indeterminate, wow. something that hasn't been communicated, but some kind of suspicion, right? Here's a different kind of doubt, uh, epistemic doubt, which can be very productive, that uh, makes you want to find something more or to be able to get closer to what well, it is that's I mean, being communicated. You said it perfectly, and I thought earlier you made a mania joke and I made a religious joke, and what I was thinking is how we collectively want to pathologize profoundly powerful experience uh, hmm. that provides an opportunity for us to have something like I mean that's the theme that I'm hmm. finding in so many people's experience is that there's a wound yes and the wound brings about some rediscovery or discovery or new orientation or new possibility and that's such a foundation to anybody I think who's profoundly discovered something with purpose yes you find that yes and there you find it and I've not put together this. Um, I had a uh, one of my committee members on my dissertation committee had uh, given me a really hard time about language, hmm. and it 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 created in me uh, a lot of fear and recognition that I, I've never really thought about this before. And it, I I did the work after that in a big. The next year was like this opening experience. It added hmm. a year to my dissertation, but it's you know it was ne- needed. Mm-hmm. So that, that moment of doubt and fear and uncertainty that, that really does bring about something miraculous. Mm-hmm. Was there an advisor relationship that enabled you to move through this? 
or oh, yeah. was okay. Yeah. That's exceptional. Yeah, I, I had unfortunately. A, I had not some. The norm. Yeah, it's, it's sad. It's you're you're you know, empathizing there. Um, yes, my um, and I'm I'm going to be interviewing him. Um, he's a he's a been a wonderful mentor for me. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody who's who's really been able to hold the space, and uh, and help me navigate some of those uh, some of that terrain that that I never knew. You, you know, it's, it's it's fascinating to me all the things we don't even know we're bumping up against. Oh yeah. <laughs> and then the veils are gradually yes, lifted. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we don't, there's no massive payoff in that. It's not every now and then we get to look back and go, oh, yeah, look where I was then. But it's not like we have a, you know, this big celebration. It, it you know, we certainly know when we're up against the kind of negative experience. But mm-hmm. when transformation happens, we kind of look back and go, oh, wow, look, look where I was. Okay. You know, <laughs> it's it's fascinating, right? Because no matter how far you progress, then the ante gets out, right? You yeah. go to the next level, and that's part of the beauty of living in time and space, right? right. You have this uh, this sense of potentiality, and as soon as you realize uh, one level, it's not like you are arrived, right? Mm-hmm. You are not an achieved being. You have to keep moving, and that's part of the um, the set of practices that you've established. That's what they can help you foster. Right? You're going to change your practices depending on what stage you're at or what the different needs are at the time. But the fact that you can see where you were, understand that those kinds of, uh, of skills and values are still constitutive of where you are, but they are not all that you are at this yeah. point. And I think the one thing that I would say to that earlier version of at least myself mm-hmm. is you don't have to doubt yourself so much. Right? Like being in a graduate posi- uh, program <laughs> just means that that's your kind of uh, you know, existential and social position. Yes. <laughs> you should exist in a space of doubt. But that kind of paralyzing self-doubt that I think afflicts so many is not productive. I think there can be productive epistemic doubt. We, per- we, do, we, we do personalize it though, don't we? Yeah. Right, um, it becomes totalizing. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm a failure, I'm a success, that kind of binary. Yes. It's not just academia. It's it the kind of professionalizing mentality that we exist within now. Right, well, I, I think even um, any talk that I've ever given or any therapy session that I've had at the end of it, at some point somebody says, what do I do about it? Mm, yes. You know, what do I, <laughs> you know, and, and the best analogy I've heard was uh, one analyst told me it's like doing the laundry. Mm. And we do the laundry. And so creating a good process or skills around how you do the laundry, I think is, you know, uh, or, I, or I caught in one of your footnotes, it was the, the farmers uh, yes. you know, that, you know, you're going to till the earth every day mm-hmm. or you're going to pick the plants, or you're going to have the bugs or you're going to whatever. And that is your process. Mm-hmm. So whatever kinds of, hmm, we'll call them psychological afflictions, whether that's through the spirits and Cashin's world or through different kinds of uh, mental health issues today, you have um, this sense that you can do more, right? You, you are a participant in uh, the everyday struggle, but you don't have to be paralyzed. So you've opened it up. I mean, I, I think I, earlier today you sent me the, your CV and I'm, I think I'm thankful because I did get a good glimpse of, kind of your experience and I didn't know how um, connected you've been with mental health and, mm. and what you've said with mental health. I'm, I'm wondering how you do frame frame that in your classes or in your talks, you know, the modern understanding of mental health. Ooh, Could you speak about that? I can. The uh, <laughs> undergraduate courses that I teach at Rice have been very much oriented towards these questions of um, <sighs> 
I'm not going to say mental health as such. I'm going to say that they are oriented towards a certain set of issues within ethics that I care about. And from an Aristotelian perspective, you have this concept of flourishing. And sometimes the, the term eudaimonia is translated as happiness. And so for the students at Rice who are at this university that is so oftentimes ranked number one in terms of its happiness quotient right, by Princeton Review, the students there are happy, happy, happy. And of course, it's partially true because they have this really thriving residential college system. They have a lot of social support. They have a lot of social engagement. But what I wanted the students to do is to confront how their conception of happiness is so oftentimes predicated on the kind of psychological mores of, uh, of fleeting happiness or tied to a certain kind of pleasure um, in a Benthamite perspective. <laughs> And instead, start to think about the kind of um, Aristotelian eudaimonia as requiring daily practices, as requiring a certain understanding of the human self, uh, requiring social relationships mm-hmm. of various kinds. And that's half of the course, which is called Religion and the Art of Happiness. But the second half is that nobody can flourish unless the possibilities are open to everybody for flourishing. And this is the social gambit of the class that in order to be able to think about flourishing, we need to create the social conditions for the possibility of everybody to engage in such practices. And so the second half is looking at um, how bias features in, how religious differences feature in, Mm -hmm. how different kinds of social organizations and communities figure in. And so it's trying to deal with a very um, kind of psychological account of what happiness is and what the roadblocks to happiness might be. But I make it into a deeply historical class, too, where the students realize it's not just Jonathan Haidt talking about this in the happiness hypothesis. Instead, you actually have to look back at the texts in order to think about how you know, bias is constructed in Nietzsche's genealogy of morals. You have to think about the, uh, the way in which gender exclusion and Mary Wollstonecraft's vindication of the rights of women is figuring a completely different set of possibilities. So that class is oriented towards um, the kind of positive orientation towards flourishing. But that class only came about because I have been teaching for a number of years a class called um, Demons, Mental Health, and Medicine. Mm -hmm. And it's a class on the construction of mental illness in the long perspective of the uh, Western tradition. So we start from Plato and his Phaedrus, considering the different forms of madness, including one, which is divine madness, which is the precondition for genius, for thinking differently, for having genuine insight, for having that kind of mystical otherness that gives you perspective on the world. And I take them through from Plato up through different um, passages uh, from the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament up through these ascetics like Antony living in the desert. He is the kind of forefather of Cashin. And so with Antony, you have this idea of, uh, of the demonic as very continuous the way in which the daimon of Socrates, right, is influencing his, um, his decision making. But in this uh, early Christian period, there really is this kind of cosmic struggle that's happening. Everybody is kind of afflicted by these different spirits, but the spirits themselves aren't pathologized, right? It's normal to have to contend with what we consider to be, you know, Akadia today, which is the precursor to um, clinical depression. People living in the desert alone are going to have to struggle with various kinds of uh, mental issues. And the question is not uh, what is being imposed upon you, but how do you deal with it from there? So there's this kind of agential nature 
that I'm trying to, to fold out there. The important thing is that mental illness is not pathologized yet. It's really in the modern period, um, especially in the 17th and 18th centuries, right? The ages of so-called enlightenment, where you have the adulation of reason at the expense of unreason. I just heard some undertones in that statement. I like that. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that there are great things that happen in modernity, right? We need human rights. We need to think about the possibilities for uh, law to be adjudicated without a certain kind of theocratic um, underlying principle. but. When, when it comes to this narrative of mental health, the, the pathologization really comes in uh, at the point where people are, um, are seen to be at fault for being aberrant. Yes, and interpretation matters. Yes, absolutely. So that's part of the, the, the entire course is meant to get students to realize that reading these different accounts through history shows exactly how much interpretation matters, how much context matters, and we need to start opening up space for you know, humanizing and dealing more empathetically with these questions. And we get to plant the seed that possibly those narratives that are created within me don't come from me and are part of this kind of lineage that I'm in that has influences of all kinds of stuff. Exactly. And that's the first step towards understanding the kind of agency that we might have on the day-to-day -day basis. If you feel like you are damned, if you feel like you are a sinner, right? If you feel like you are wrong uh, from a secular perspective or a sacred one, uh, you feel like you have no power, right? You have no possibility. You have no means of pushing through. But as soon as you can realize that, well, these are constructs that can be negotiated, mm -hmm. then from there you can start opening up new ways of dealing with these questions. Okay, what a great uh, setup into our cashing in. Okay. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm I'm nervous because I do want to get into that. Uh, would you would you uh, define a few terms? Um, ethics, right? We hear this a lot. Oh yes. Uh, yeah. Please let me know, like when you say ethical and ethics, what do you, what do you mean? Great question. Mm -hmm. So I'm dealing with a conception of ethics that is uh, a part of uh, ancient discourses as opposed to discourses of morality, which are more characteristic of a certain kind of Kantian, Enlightenment, and post-Enlightenment perspective. Morality, um, in the kind of reduction at least that Foucault gives, is about following a code of rules. In a Kantian perspective, right, it's about using rational judgment in order to glean the best um, possible uh, course of action. Morality in both of those ways is so much about um, either prioritizing the use of reason or blindly submitting to a set of rules in order to act the right way that it makes uh, these questions into binaries of right and wrong. Ethics in the ancient perspective that I think carries forward. It's not just in ancient Greece and Rome, but also within forms of early Christianity, et cetera, as I said at the beginning of the interview. The, the way in which we think about ethics is really as a way of life, right? It's a kind of ethos, the, uh, the kind of character in uh, some people's translation that one is establishing. And in order to create one's character, you're constructing your whole way of life. So it's not a question about, am I doing the right action or the wrong action, but instead, who am I trying to become? So when I think about ethical formation, it's not about am I forming myself in order to act well or poorly or right and wrong, but instead am I training myself to act in a way that comports with the kind of orientation that I have and uh, that allows me to exercise and enhance the kinds of values that I'm trying to participate in. 
I feel like hugging you right now. That was awesome. Yeah. Thank you. That's been so on my mind. I hear it all the time. <laughs> and uh, thank you for that. That was a that was a fantastic definition. Um, yeah, I hear it. I hear it all the time. And uh, and I've had an idea, you know. But the way you just put it into those words, uh, thank you. Um, okay, let's go through a couple others. The self, right? Yeah. You've got the self written around, and we. <laughs> from Kohut to Jung to Freud to, you know, kind of in this tradition that I'm in, the yeah. self. What is it when you say it? What do you mean? Well, that's a trick question because <laughs> <laughs> I try to avoid the language of the self as much as possible in the actual book. Yes. And I use the language of subjectivity instead. Yes. And that's a part of the Foucauldian uh, tradition that right. I'm increasingly operating within. And so I was trying to avoid the language of the self too much because uh, we can allow that the self to be hypostasized in yeah. its own way. And instead, thinking about forms of subjectivity, I mean that you, your self is in process, uh-huh. right? It's in this continuous um, kind of negotiation. And you're participating in these different forms of subjectivity where you are, um, kind of, this is the language of the sites that come in, um, where you're able to kind of operate on different sites of uh, subjectivity and therefore forge a certain kind of uh, character, if you'd like, or self in my terms. The title itself is a riff on two books, and uh, you already got the aesthetic part, so we don't have to deal with that at least. But the uh, Sources of the Self by Charles Taylor, which was a very influential kind of source book for me, that does a similar kind of genealogy, right? It takes us diachronically through these different traditions and it shows how the modern self has actually been situated within and produced in relation to these various discourses that have not faded away. It's just that they are a part that is much more tacit now. And so thinking about the idea that the secular is actually without the sacred, or that the secular can be defined without reference to the religious is, uh, is bankrupt in my perspective. <laughs> right. <laughs> but the, it uh, certainly is. Right, the, the Charles Taylor version was really illuminating for me because I realized we can start thinking about the self from this historical perspective and we can start thinking about the self from uh, different kinds of um, you know, historical and cultural context position points that then give a better sense of how various we might understand the self to be. Right, the self is not just taking one form, but instead, in antiquity, right, we have um, a self according to a very different kind of cosmological background, according to a very different political background. There's domino, uh, a different domino. kind of uh, ethical background. Follow <laughs> the white rabbit. Yeah, uh, so the, the white rabbit has <laughs> come to bring us down the, the conversation oh, hole. That's lovely. That's I think she heard me faltering. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> So the sources of the self, uh, that's where the language of the self comes in, because uh-huh. I think the, the category of the self still needs to be uh, um, preserved and made more robust and understood in a more capacious way. I think that there's a lot of room for that. The other book that the title is a riff on is uh, Sites of the Social by Theodore Shatsky, and he's a sociologist who's talking about um, agency as a part of a kind of a distribution of agencies. So it's not just the kind of Assadian distinction between uh, being a subject versus being an agent. Instead, we can think about how human agency is not predicated on autonomy. Instead, human agency can be seen to be deeply um, relational and reliant on a whole host of networks of agents and agencies. And so that's that kind of inner social and interrelational element that I wanted to, uh, to bring forward. So it's like, 
the sides of the ascetic self is the uh, various points at which the uh, ascetic forms of subjectivity might be shaped, formed, and articulated in John Cash and early Christian ethical philosophy. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll read from you for a second. Um, yeah. Such constitution, however, does not preclude activities of self-shaping. It only precludes any view of the self as autonomous and not subject to any determinants beyond itself. Bingo. I read that and I thought, wow. I mean, that, that to me is, uh, frames things in very well. I love this definition, and I appreciate it. Uh, Lionel Corbett was just talking about, uh, I was listening to an interview with him, and he was talking about how each, each theorist is, uh, is awarded one miracle, and oftentimes <laughs> it is the miracle of the self. And we say, ah, yes, it's uh, divinely inspired, or it's here at birth, or uh, it's created through our early family experience. You know, and, yeah. and that, that uh, we're, we don't, and of course, then, the, then the, any, any person says, well, look, I, you know, it's not to be pinned down. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, and I agree with that. I, I think that some things are not to be subjected to the kind of reductionism that you're, that you're, I think, really trying to push up against. Um, okay, so you already said, uh, 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 it, because of the project, um, I, would, would you, you just said it, right? Sacred and secular. Yes. And I'm still toying with the name. So by the time anybody hears this, I'm going to have determined the name, but right now it's, I'm not too sure. Um, would you define that, sacred and secular? Yes, briefly. The, uh, can I bring your other title up? Sure. Okay. Well, the, <clears throat> let's back up. Quickly, I'll bring us back to a very old school definition of the secular, which mm -hmm. is the Latin, right, secularum. And there, like, the, the, the secularum was um, kind of an age, a generation. Um, this was uh, in Roman antiquity, and it gets brought forward in, um, in Augustine as a way of kind of understanding the earthly city, the city of man, as opposed to the city of God. But that kind of uh, religious metaphysics was not a part of the, the earliest kind of Roman articulation, which is really the kind of um, generation having to do with the lifespan of a whole life. So birth, development, maturity, death. They're like, that's a cycle. That's a cycle, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's nothing that opposes itself to the religious or that opposes itself to the sacred. Instead, it's a way of measuring time. And it's a way of measuring time that has to do with progress and decay. <laughs> it's very kind of uh, Anaximander, um, the, the pre-Socratic philosopher who's talking about the Aperon as the principle, it's, he says, the Aperon is the first principle of, um, of things that are. It is that from which things take off and that to which things return when they perish by moral necessity according to the order of time. So there's this kind of cyclical metaphysic that's involved here that um, you know, readily accommodates a certain kind of uh, you know, divine presence or the presence of the fates or whatever kind of cosmological background you might think is sustaining these um, these different cycles so the kind of distinction that Augustine makes between the the secular right the mundane the earthly versus the divine the godly the heavenly this is where you kind of see that split between the two cities and you see an oppositionality in a way right where the heavenly city is always at hand it's just that it's more or less obscure depending on how people in the earthly city are actually apprehending these distinctions so this is like mm -hmm. the old school way of thinking about the secular not as divorced from 
these um, these questions of of uh, religiosity and certainly not divinity until you have an Augustinian kind of articulation of the difference that is still not split. He's still saying that the kind of cosmological perspective is in place. It's just that we have uh, um, realized its potentiality, better or worse, in our own mundane and common society. So from that, what I like is the um, the kind of understanding of the uh, the secular, the profanus as common, over and against the sacred as special. And I'm taking the language of special from Ann Taves, who's a um, right scholar sure. from UCSB. And so the, uh, the sacred as something that is special, that can be divinely mandated or not, versus the, the secular or the profane as that which is common in every day. And there are really interesting things involved here. And I was trying to think through the, um, the, the connections that, that we might draw. The way that the secular sphere, at least, allows itself to be articulated is that because there's no divine authority or anchor, humans can start to make the world in their own image. And we see the effects of that, right? Like we are living now without a beyond, without reference to an authority of any of the kind other than ourselves and the way in which we want to shape and reshape and decimate the world. And so we've been really effective, right? We have ta- humans have taken right, ourselves as our own measure. You know, that old Pythagoras um, notion of man being the measure of all things. And so the kind of destructiveness that opens up when we think about the secular as uh, allowing for humans to make the world in its own image that leads us to at least be able to understand the way in which climate change is happening right now, right? The, the threat of nuclear war, the very ways in which we have actually completely remade the world around us, right? Like that's human, right? This is the Anthropocene that we're talking about. And, and it means that we are exhausting the very resources, right? We're coming up against the perils of taking the world to be something which we can shape in this way. And that's part of why I'm so invested in the discourses of ethics, because we have to change things now, right? We are going to expire. And if in order to change things, we have to learn how to change ourselves. When I'm talking about ethical formation, this is not a solipsistic, individualistic exercise and how we can lead better lifestyles talking about ethical formation as a way in which we can shape ourselves as achievements in this world in relation to other people in order to then reshape the social and political and economic and cultural orders within which we're a part. Hopefully with the intention of orienting the, uh, the world towards something that is not quite as beholden to financial capitalism and the, the forms of, of destruction that have left us where we've been in the last year where an unrolling set of crises um, each and every day, um, I think leaves us with no choice other than to commit to action or to, to give up. This is why Cashin is fascinating to me. Right? He's living at the edge of empire. Yeah. He's trying to figure out how you live when uh, the forms of living have proven to be no longer tenable. Right. Augustine's response 
to the sacking of Rome in 410 is to articulate these two different cities. And it's this um, terrible move that he makes later on when he becomes much more conservative. And the idea of the uh, predestination, right? We uh, are uh. going to be of the elect or the damned. Cashin is his contemporary. And Cashin is not thinking about these great metaphysics. Cashin is thinking about what do we do day to day? How do we live when uh, the forms of social order are transforming, right? They're undergoing their own kinds of birth pangs. And so he is helping articulate for his own community in Gaul, in modern-day Marseille. Mm -hmm. He's helping them articulate ways of living that he himself lived through in the Egyptian desert, as well as in Constantinople and Rome to a certain extent. And he's helping them figure out how to construct social orders, right? how to live in relation, how to understand that you are a part of these broader wholes. And yes, God and prayer and these, uh, these explicitly religious elements are a part of it. But why I think Cashin is so fascinating for us to think about today is because he does give us this way of thinking about how to construct your life when it comes down to the very basic things that you can attend to when you know that you are overdetermined in so many of these larger superstructural ways. So let's dive into that. Okay. Uh, I'm still kind of swimming through what you just said a second ago, a minute ago. Um, okay. Cashin, this this figure that you've written this, you know, really enticing book on, it, it, and Foucault right there. Why put them in conversation with each other? The project came about <laughs> over many, many years. I first came across Cashin when I was an undergraduate in my senior year, and his name kept popping up in relation to hermeneutics, different mm -hmm. forms of interpretation, but he wasn't really very pervasive. Meanwhile, I was reading a lot of Augustine. Right? This is when I was reading um, the, well, a lot of the Augustinian corpus. And I kind of let that go. I went to divinity school instead of a philosophy program because, as my mentor had said, <laughs> graduate programs in philosophy are not what you think they are. Right? Like They're very analytic. They are not yes. um, dealing with the kinds of cultural questions they that really motivate you. They say here too for a lot. They went? They say here too for a lot. Here for, yes. <laughs> and some of my best friends are philosophers. Yeah. It's just <laughs> Me too. <laughs> the kind of my questions brother that included, me. You know? Really? Oh, yeah. family rivalry. Like yeah. It. <laughs> It's a loving one, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so I went to uh, divinity school instead, and I wanted to continue my march through Western history, right? Because I still was dealing with a kind of naive version of, uh, of Western history as a whole. But it was one that I had because I was studying Hegel and Augustine. That was what I wrote my undergraduate pseudo-thesis on, the, um, the order temporis, the order of time in uh, mm. Augustine and Hegel. And so moving from antiquity up through early Christianity, a bit into the medieval period in divinity school, and then getting exposed to these uh, ethical courses and um, you know, theories and methods courses um, at Harvard Divinity School, that was when I started reading Foucault, and that was with my advisors there, Annie Hollywood, um, who's spectacular, and John Schoffer. I saw her all over your book. I, I wrote her name down because I wanted to chat with her. Like, <laughs> Absolutely, wow. yes. That's some, she's done some cool stuff. Sorry to... She's a spectacular interlocutor. Yeah. yeah, you would love her. Yeah. Um, and you know, my debt to her has actually grown throughout the years. 
because I went to Brown because they had an ethics program and Harvard at the time did not. Brown also had a really spectacular attention to the kind of quality of life. So I developed the uh, religion and critical thought aspect there and really as I was coming back to the book over the last few years and it's very different than the dissertation it really is its own book but this is when my um, my respective uh, influences from both Amy and then uh, um, Todd Lewis was my advisor mm-hmm. Brown and various other figures were kind of coming into this really productive um, meeting and I was doing something that was very much informed by them but also something that hopes to, to push our conversation forward especially when it comes down to thinking about human agency in these very basic everyday ethical forms so the what was the question I can't even remember I'm, I'm loving everything you're yeah, saying well. it's so <laughs> I, 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 you know, oh it, Waifuko and Gashet <laughs> yeah, yes I'm still, oh. I'm swimming through all this stuff having the most fun in, in my head right now listening to you thank you for grounding us in remembering the question that I asked no, thank you for your support and for being the uh, the first official person I know to have read the book without being paid or under compulsion oh, yeah yeah I mean gosh I feel blessed to have been able to read the book yeah well that's so yeah first blessing uh, conversation so, Foucault and Cashin yes yeah, so I was reading these works by Foucault and um, various French philosophers, as we've been mm-hmm. talking about. And Foucault himself, right, he's known as this great theorist of power. Um, Discipline and Punish is his most cited book. It's from 1975, or it was published then at least. And he uh, makes this interesting transition from roughly 1976-77 through his death in 1984, where in his own words he says, maybe I insisted too much on the operations of power. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Just let me, let me offer this up for you. And he continues saying, I'm more and more interested in the self's relationship to itself. That's more or less uh-huh. what he says. I think it's almost a direct quote. So he makes this transition because he's talked about the way in which you know power is totalizing and it's about uh, you know power is a relation, it's not hierarchical, uh, it's productive, these different ways in which power is not just a uh, kind of binary mm-hmm. um, structure, and yet it's still so totalizing, and we are still so shaped by the institutions and conditions around us. And he wanted to know, how do we shape ourselves at all in the midst of this? And of course, this has been my question. Sure. And so he turns back to antiquity. So he goes back to ancient Greece where he thinks that there is this attention to the relationship of the self to self that's possible. It mutates in uh, the Greco-Roman period and it mutates further in Christianity. And he thinks of Cassian as this person who inaugurates a modern sense of disciplinary subjectivity because it's no longer about the relationship that the self has to the self. Instead, it's about the self renouncing itself. Right? It's about rooting out these uh, interior desires, these secret desires, and speaking them, and in speaking them, breaking the power that they have, right? Uh, Disavowing the self that they had constituted. And so Foucault has this um, this very renunciatory reading of Cashin. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he really affirms this sense of interiority. And in my own reading of Cashin, as well as these other figures in early Christianity, throughout the various graduate programs, that was not my experience of his text. And so I went back to Cashin, and the body's everywhere. Not only is the body everywhere, the emotions are everywhere, it's completely contextualized in these interrelational um, social spaces. 
And so the the kinds of passages that Foucault is citing, right, he he's um, he has this one article called The Battle for Chastity, and it's about cash-in and nocturnal emissions. And so Foucault is very selectively citing these parts from Cashin. Mm-hmm. But when you read the broader tapestry, you realize that, you know, Cashin is really talking about the um, the, the everyday, the, the way in which we are transforming ourselves, not renouncing ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so that was the beginning of this critical inquiry into how Foucault reads Cashin because I was invested in a constructive inquiry that Foucault himself was into, which is how do we find alternatives to modern morality, right, which he says is already broken down. Well, we need to turn towards a certain understanding of ethics as a way of life. And this is the kind of um, kind of shift that I was making myself. And so when I read Foucault, especially his later work, I realized that we share a similar kind of sensibility. Um, I think perhaps a sense of urgency, in part a sense of desperation <laughs> over where we are today, and also this corollary sense that we cannot recapitulate the practices from uh, different contexts. But looking at different contexts can help us understand questions in a new way. So how do we open up conversations about what the self is? How is it shaped? What is it to engage in these forms of, uh, of ethical praxis? How does an attention to the body and the emotions and other people in Cashin help us understand today the way in which human agency might be understood from these other perspectives? And, and that's the problem, I think, with um, the nostalgic viewpoint is that I think what you're saying there is that nostalgia is a time for, to go, you know, a desire to go back then. <laughs> yes. And I'm not saying we should go eat three chickpeas as a feast. Right. right. I, or or uh, go back to, you know, make America great again. You know, the... That whole entire approach of nostalgia is saying there's a time that things were better. Yep. What I like about what you've done here is you're looking at these historical figures and bringing them current day. Mm-hmm. As, as I, I think what they were doing was kind of practice, how, how do I approach this current day rather than how can I go back then and do what they were doing then? Yes, I have no nostalgia for right. pretty much any other time and place. Right. <laughs> well, and because the agency that I think that we can articulate now would have been completely precluded to me well, that, as a woman, as a woman of color, as a queer sure. person, but all of these reasons. That's kind of the issue is that we, we want, I mean, I hear it, a nostalgia in, in my practice. Mm-hmm. God, I want to go back when it was everything was good. You know, I want to go back to a time when I felt better than yeah. now. You know, it's this retreat from what's presented. <sighs> and. Yeah. So I, I, that thought came to me as I was reading your work and thinking about that the kind of how-tos is these sites of, uh, or I, I thought of them as touch points, you know, those points where we connect with something usually uncomfortable in our lives mm-hmm. and we're looking for, and, I, and I, it's an interesting metaphor, you know, the technology, the how-to, to approach these recurring patterns in our lives. Mm-hmm. And three of those, as you, as you the book, you go into the three things are uh, the body, the emotions, and you, the third thing I want to, because you, you would say reflective, mm-hmm. you would also say relational. Mm-hmm. What, what, what does it mean, reflective? Oh, yeah, so those two things are different. Reflective is the, um, the capacity for uh, what we might call rational reflection, so a kind of representational, um, discursive uh, reflection that can be... Uh, put into words. It's a very kind of stoic notion of having propositional content. And then relationship. Yes. Right, so, and that is such a big theme in what you're writing about, is being in relationship with, as you said, right, not the autonomous self, mm-hmm. but the intersubjectivity of one's experience. 
Yeah, I would avoid the language of intersubjectivity just because <laughs> there's so much baggage from uh, certain it, forms of phenomenology. Into, yeah, and sure. So I'll, I'll avoid the intersubjective, but the interrelational, the yeah. way in which we are always being produced by the conditions and contexts in which we are shaped. So that's the Foucauldian kind of move mm-hmm. there. But then we also have uh, the... Uh, kind of one-to-one or one-to-many relationships where we are shaped by the people that we are in uh, in conversation with, right, in pedagogical relationship to, in therapeutic relation to. So how much, you said something earlier around kind of um, Foucault's issue that you, you didn't, you, you critiqued him, have critiqued him on, mm-hmm. um, leaving out things like the body. Mm-hmm. You know, and getting into duality, of course, one of the ways we frame that is this kind of domain for this masculine world, which is the mm-hmm. kind of intellect, and the feminine, which is which is not, you know, which has more to do with the body. Of course, then we need to blow those things up and say, you know, we need to stop being gendered when we read these things. Mm-hmm. But it, it does seem fascinating that you're reading these earlier men, not, not Cashin, but it, this man's understanding of uh, an approach in life that has a very intellectual kind of patriarchal view <laughs> yeah and, and you know you're you're critiquing that I think and beginning to bring something that's chthonic and, and earthly into it that I think is so necessary that we're obviously lacking today mm-hmm. so w- what about the body and emotions and being reflective yeah this is a difficult terrain because I find myself writing books about men and I don't want to <laughs> Uh, I'm writing about these figures because I want to be able to situate us in relation to these discourses mm-hmm. in order to critique them, dismantle them, and to be able to use them productively when, when uh, applicable. But my, my orientation is towards the kind of gender and queer readings of texts. And so this is what allowed me to go back to Cashin and not read it from the kind of interiorizing or rationalizing perspective of Foucault, but instead according to the the kinds of uh, optics and lenses um, that call forth attention to what the body is doing, what the emotions are doing, and what that training looks like. Because it's really easy, I mean, as, as Foucault did, right, to read Cashin very selectively and to think that there's this interiorizing um, emphasis that's exclusive. And what's interesting about Foucault is that he wants to talk about the body in the ancient Greeks, or he wants to talk about different forms of stylization. This is a part of his uh, series on the history of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Right? He's talking about the, the use of pleasure and, uh, and the engagement of the body. Um, it's just that with the uh, particulars of Cashin, he thinks that the body is renounced. And the body is not renounced. You really have to think about Cashin from this ethical perspective of transformation as his goal. He has proximate as well as distal goals, and he is going to, well, at least in my reading, he breaks down what the daily practices look like. And he does this in the literary framing. He doesn't prescribe as much, but it's, it's, it's ever-present throughout the book itself, books. Meaning the you know uh, the question that you'll inevitably get from somebody who's reading your book, which is the, you know how do I do this right? How do I? Oh uh, yes. Right. Yes, yes. Uh, you know you can tell them to read the book. You know? <laughs> <laughs> read Cash and don't do what he says to do, <laughs> but take away the ethos. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, the spirit of the issue. Yeah. And the the final existential moment, <laughs> and it's not quite that, but the um, the personal precipitate for the way that the book developed was um, was in the PhD program 
And I was dealing with these questions of the self and thinking about this broader genealogy that Foucault is engaging and thinking about, well, how do we think about ethics today? But it was all very abstract. And um, I lost my best friend then um, to suicide. And part of what I was trying to figure out, again, in that space of urgency, was considering the kinds of constraints that he was within. What could he have done that did not yet require the kind of authorizing presence of God or an outside that he needed to believe in more in order to be able to get him through? And so, I mean, this came out because you know, he would go to, I mean, he also struggled with addiction, but that was really a way of coping with um, underlying mental illness. And in AA, you can't have high modernism be your higher power. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't work, right? There isn't enough support there. And that act of the will, that act of the mind, that act of belief in itself can only get you so far. And so when I was thinking about cash-in and ethics and what this work is even good for, I had to start thinking about what can we do day to day that does not require that sense of will or consent in some big and totalizing way, right? When you feel paralyzed, what can you start to do on a very basic and mundane level? And because of my experience as a dancer, I was thinking, okay, well, what do you need to do? You need to eat certain things. You need to drink certain things, have a certain amount of sleep. Um, as an academic, right, we need to read certain things. We need to have certain kinds of conversations. We need to be in dialogue with people. And so the various practices that have constituted my life kind of came to the fore. And, and I'll say that these are the things that I struggled with myself. And I needed to shape the self very intentionally for many, many years until it became a habit and then could continue to develop and transform, et cetera. And with this book, writing it for my friend, I really wanted to figure out a way of breaking down what the discrete things might be that you can turn to when the idea of, of getting better or being well, or even of being in a different time or in a better, pli a better place or time, uh, according to the nostalgic model that you're thinking mm -hmm. through. You just need to figure out what can locate you in the day-to-day -day that isn't going to be too onerous and that will not instill in you a sense of dread and failure out of the gates. Instead, what can allow you to have a kind of progressive engagement and what can allow you to feel in these, again, mundane ways, the way in which you are transforming yourself, your life, your relationship with others. So that's the way that one's own ethical formation is both deeply interrelational because it depends on the people in which you are in contact and are supported by, and in some times and places live for, and the bodily and affective supports. In addition to the kind of reflective commitment towards a certain orientation, I found were one of the compelling ways to break down the mechanisms of transformation when the world itself seems too much. <clears throat> I keep going back to this. Uh, my, my thought as you were saying that is, I wonder if people are surprised that you are a professor in a religion department <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, this is what you hear all the time as a graduate student so what's religious about exactly <laughs> religious and that's been what's i mean i don't 
I don't I just don't see much of a difference between the kind of things that I'm doing on a daily basis and the kind of things you're thinking about and talking about. Mm-hmm. We may have different methodologies, but really they're not that different and I, I it, this is such rich material and easily easily um, integrated into one's personal experience, which I think mm-hmm. is one of the things people come seeking when they go to therapy, which is, you know, how can I how can I make sense of this stuff and how can I get through these really dark times? Yes. And, uh, you know, my, my, my heart goes out to you um, with the loss of a friend. I think that's one of those experiences that brings up our profound loneliness and questions of um, hurt and loss. But also that kind of vulnerability that we're talking about, mm-hmm. right? The, the wounds, those are constitutive of who we are. They, uh, yeah. This is the Amy Hollywood line. You should really talk to her at some point, but... I think in order to understand the self as an achievement that's ongoing, in order to think about ethics as something that needs to foreground transformation, you can't start from the assumption of holism. You can't have this idea that we are these whole beings. Um, Like Harry Frankfurt has this kind of mentality on reasons of love, and it's a beautiful work. And it's a beautiful work of analytic philosophy, but I never started from the assumption of holism. And with each fracture, with each experience, where one does not even feel like one has a self, right? One has to work at it. One has to understand that these these losses are spurs to transformation. Otherwise, again, one can be felled by them. Yeah. Yes. So, but the, but the love is there, and it's I'm, not like I'm, he's gone. Yeah. So from yes. that perspective, I, I, right, know, like I, it's a testament. I was at, um, I spoke at a funeral this weekend. A friend had died, and so I'm kind of, I'm in that space, mm. you know, uh, harmonizing with that. And you know, all the questions that come up as a result of the loss, it can be, they're they're profoundly important to ask. And the things that I saw, that um, the one thing that I see in, in in grief that helps, that makes me struggle, is when people are trying to escape. Mm. And, and that's what I hear in this is redemptive and that it, um, it positions somebody in relationship to their suffering. And they're, they're, your orientation is readying and connecting and relating to suffering. And in the truest form of the term, you know, what are we to carry? What are we to hold? What are we to bear? Yes. And I need to, I need to do my work. I need to till my field and you know, brush my teeth and do my laundry every day mm-hmm. in order to go out into the world. And these are the practices that I think it, it's gone in reading your work. It's gone from being in the, in, you know, kind of shaving your head and going into the mountaintop or the forest and, and really and truly being in everyday experience. I suffer daily. Yes. I, do, I do. I hurt daily. Yeah. And, uh, so I think, I think what it does is it removes the kind of pathologizing nature of suffering and brings it up into our lived experience. And then we can wake up every day and not bemoan the fact or loathe it, but know it. Exactly. Be with it. Right. Suffering is a part of, of existence, and that doesn't mean that it's necessarily destructive. I mean, suffering is productive, right. just like in the Foucauldian mentality, power right, is also productive. But suffering is in part productive because it challenges us, right? We have to work really hard at living. Yes. And that's part of what I'm trying to get across in this whole book, right? How hard it is to live, 
Yes. <laughs> and how hard it is to really commit to a certain way of life. Yeah. But it's because I think I have, um, I mean, if it's too pessimistic, at least we're resonating together right now. The, uh, the fact of suffering is basic to me. And not just to me, like in the way that I understand the world. And when it comes down to thinking about what kind of agreement we would need to make in order to think about an ethics from a pluralist perspective, the thing I keep coming back to for these years is that one should work towards the alleviation of suffering. Or in the very least, try not to exacerbate it. And so it's very thin in terms of what it's prescribing, but it's this kind of orientation towards another human or even you know, towards the world at this stage, towards the uh, different kinds of ecosystems that we're living in and that are collapsing around us. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the different ways in which we can alleviate the suffering of, of others also applies to the way in which we may alleviate the suffering of ourselves. And this is something that I really learned through my partner, John, the uh, the fellow bunny parent, with me. <laughs> your co your co parent. Co parent, yeah. <laughs> right, because he showed me a different way of being, and he showed me how effortless hard work can look, mm-hmm. and that kind of effortlessness has been called grace in certain uh, theological traditions. Uh, you know, love and other romantic ones, romanticist, I should say, since he's romanticist. But um, that everyday presence to each other and that sense that you can navigate the world because you are in relationship. It doesn't have to just be romantic or social or professional. It's all these kinds of relationships that can be points of intersection amongst the realities of suffering as opposed to suffering itself being an endpoint. So I'm I'm failing you right now because I see that we are almost out of time. It's almost noon. There's no failing. <laughs> <laughs> Only suffering. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, I shall suffer to end this with you. And yes, me too. And uh, and I, I know we need to close this out. Um, my my hope is that we can open it back up again because this has been so enriching for me, um, and selfishly on some level, that's what this project is about. You know. Um, following the thread of curiosity and passion and interest and allowing that to be a guide. Mm -hmm. And I I can tell you this, it has completely been fulfilled and realized today in conversation with you. This is very enriching. I'm, I'm grateful for the time. I look forward to turning the tables on you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, for now, uh, for now, this is, uh, this is wonderful. Thanks. Um, is there anything else that, uh, any kind of thread that's hanging out that you feel we need to touch on before we finish, aside from the tapestry that, that we obviously could for the next 12 hours, but, uh, but we won't have the time today. You know, Marx says philosophers have only thought about the world. The point is to go out and change it. Yeah. And I think that's really what is the spur for me. In order to change the world, what do we do? We need to change ourselves. In order to change ourselves, we need to rely on others. Right? It's this whole interrelational web. And so when thinking about the kinds of crises that are still so current and uh, continue to be unfolding, this sense of uh, relationality, I think, is the one that I want to be able to push forward. And that's what your project is doing. Mm-hmm. Right? You're putting people in relation. You are bringing different voices. You're creating your own tapestry here, which has been uh, uh, an exceptional privilege to participate in. And I hope to be able to bring you 
out in turn and uh, engage you with some of my students and, and the broader university as well. Thanks. But the I'm kind of honored. ethical cry, right? It's that we need to, to think about these questions that's very live today because otherwise paralysis, despondency, and despair, I think are very uh, realistic threats. I'm so grateful for your willingness here. Of course. Thanks. It was a real pleasure. Controls your dreams.